Welcome to the Shelton Church of the Nazarene podcast. On this podcast, you'll hear sermons that have been preached on our Sunday morning gatherings. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. ...and continue our study of Revelation. B-Tubs, is it recording? Because someone texts me they won't be here and they want to hear it. So, okay, cool. So, really quickly, we're going to recap some things that happened. So, I have some images... uh, I guess you're up, Jeremiah, so hit the space bar. Maybe. Yes, okay. If if you haven't noticed, we have this large, what is called an infographic in the foyer. It's called an infographic because it has information and lots of graphic art on it. So instead of trying to make you squint, in case you guys didn't bring your binoculars this morning, um, you can't see that? Oh, well, everything's ruined. All right, go to the next slide, Jeremiah. There you go. So that's a little bit of a closer picture, but there's going to be a better picture later. I just want to lay out what is in the foyer so you can go back and look for yourself. This is what we talked about last week. Um, There's three sets of seven that are divine judgments, and you can look on that graphic in the foyer, and it'll say an A and a B, and it's going to say that a lot. And what that means is that there are different opinions on the book of Revelation. Have you heard me say that a couple times yet? We need to practice our phrase. I'm going to say we, I could be wrong, right? So we're going, to, we're going to practice that this morning. And Aaron's not here to say, yes, Josiah, you could be wrong. So together, we're going to say, I could be wrong. Are you ready? I could be wrong. So what this is trying to honor is the fact that there are some different takes on this book. A says these seven, or three sets of seven, almost four sets of seven, are a literal sequence of events. And the other thought is B, that it could be a time period between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. Either way, it happens between the resurrection and the second coming, whether it's this literal sequence or a metaphorical sequence. There is definitely a period of time that is elapsing. Um, And if you recall, we were just in the throne room, and there was this whole debacle about no one's worthy to open the seal. And the seal is supposed to reveal this stuff. And that, that word reveal, that's all the word apocalypse actually means, is to reveal things that are about to come. And the other word that is often used in this book of Revelation is prophecy. And prophecy isn't the sort of, oh, let me read your palm. Oh, your lifeline is super long and this, that, or the other. Oh, let me read a card to see a thing. Prophets in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament even simply did one job. They said, this is what God told you to do. If you don't, it's going to be bad. You're going to get a really long time out. So I tell my children, if you do it one more time, try it. Do it one more. That's essentially what prophets did in a very literal way to entire nations of people. They said, do it one more time, Israel. Test me. I'm going to count to three, Israel, and then sent them on a timeout to Babylon. So it's in the Old Testament, if you don't believe me. He didn't say timeout, necessarily. Like, that's not, that's Josiah's language. So anyways, the recap of the seven seals. There were seven. Seven's a big deal number. It's kind of the perfect whole number. It's how many days are in a week. It's used so many times in Revelation. Seven lampstands, seven churches, seven uh, seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven signs. Seven is just everywhere. And it's a very common usage of numbers for a person that would have lived in the Middle East in the first and second century. But in this, in this uh, discussion last week that we had, we saw that the first four seals were opened, and from them were these different horsemen. 
there's a white one, there's a black one, there's a red one, there's a pale green one, and we would often refer to them as the horsemen of the apocalypse. And I told you yesterday that there are two schools of thought. One is that these are literal people or angels or beings, and the other is that these are metaphorical representations of things like conquest, of war, of famine, and of death. Either way, that is the result of those horsemen. Conquest, war, famine, and death. The fifth seal is about the martyrs. The sixth seal is about the day of the Lord where a whole bunch of crazy stuff happens, where people ask, who can stand? And then there's this interesting discussion about the 144,000. And the 144,000 are going to continue to play kind of a role in what we're going to talk about today. But it's basically this idea that there's martyrs or that there are these people throughout this end times discussion that will do what God wants, that are God's servants no matter what is going on, despite all these crazy things that are happening in the world. Then the seventh seal happens, and lots of craziness ensues in Revelation chapter 8. And here's the thing. Here's what we're going to do today, folks. I'm not going to read everything line for line. Uh, There's a lot of chapters to discuss today, so I'm going to show you these infographics, but you're going to make me a promise that you're not going to just say, oh, I read the Bible for today. You need to actually go home and read it for yourself. Chapter 6 through 8 is what that just covered. That's actually what we read through last week, more or less. But this week, we're going to be in 8 to 11. And you can go to the next slide. 8 through 11 is about these trumpets. And these trumpets are basically these plagues. Even more judgments from God. And they're a little bit scary. Which is why when the children's church goes, they're not following our same uh, scripture reading. They're doing something else because this stuff's like a little bit more uh, PG-13. So these seven trumpets are, are blasted and from these trumpets usher all these different plagues. And in this graphic in the back, you'll see that they, they call them kind of like the Exodus plagues because in a very similar way, you have things like hail, blood, Poisoned water, darkness, locusts, but in this time, they're demon locusts. Um, and then you have the four horsemen potentially coming out of that sixth trumpet. But the key, the thing that we're going to wrestle with today is not the nitty-gritty details of what each plague actually is in real life, what it is or isn't, how literally we should take this, that, or the other. It's the response. So in chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, you can see... That after these seals, after these trumpets, the nations don't repent. So once again, we have to go back and remember, what is this book about? If it's a book of of, uh, apocalyptic literature with a prophetic nature, then what John is trying to do, what Jesus is trying to use John to do in this book, in this letter to the church, is to say, hey, things are about to get real. This is what you need to do. Otherwise, it's not going to be great for you. So if that is what we're seeing in the book of Revelation, then what's curious is that God's ultimate goal, what God truly wants for his people, for truly everybody, is to live in a right relationship with him, to repent, to to be redeemed, to be reconciled. However, and not to critique God or anything like that, the plagues don't seem to be working. Because in this chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, it says the nations don't repent, which is an interesting callback to Exodus. What happened to Pharaoh after all of the plagues? He said, no, thank you. I'm not going to do it. 
And eventually, after he let Moses take the people away, he had second thoughts, and he tried to chase them down, and then the Red Sea swallowed him up. But what's curious is this is an interesting parallel that is going to continue to play out, and we're going to get to the witnesses and stuff in a second. You can go to the next uh, slide, though, Jeremiah. It's going to play out in all these different plagues and these judgments that we're going to get to in chapters 12 and 14, um, and you can see them out on the uh, big picture in the foyer. And go to the last one, Jeremiah. Maybe. Is there another one after that? There we go. Is there one after that? I put it in, in wrong order then. Yes, that's the one. Thank you so much. Super helpful. These, these trumpets, and this is, this is the references, if you can read that clearly, hopefully you can. It has an interesting parallel to some of the things that happened in Exodus. All this stuff happens in, in 8-7. It says, green grass and a third of the trees are burned up. Uh, a third of the sea became blood. A third of the ships and sea life were destroyed. A third of the waters turned bitter. A third of the sun, moon, and stars did not shine. Locusts wield the beast's military power. 200 million man army and a third of the mankind are killed. And then in the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, 15 through 19, the kingdom of God is declared. So basically, in chapter 8 and 9, we see all of these trumpets. The first six trumpets are blasted. And much like in Exodus, in the, the, uh, the, show, uh, the showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, God is trying to say, no, stop doing that. Behold my might, my power, my judgment, my even wrath, we could say. But in the midst of these judgments, the nations don't repent. But there is something that ultimately does make people repent, and it's very interesting. It's very curious, because it has something to do, and you can go to the next slide. You don't have to leave that one up, Jeremiah. It has something to do with those 144,000. It has something to do with that fifth seal, the martyrs. It has something to do with what we would see in chapter 11 with the two witnesses. See, there throughout this center section of all these signs of sevens, there's a common trend. Go to the one that says the end and just leave that one up. There's a common trend that happens. Either John will see or hear a thing, and it's kind of interesting and counterintuitive, or God will do a thing, and people would think that should have worked, but then, yet again, another counterintuitive thing happens. Almost without exception, what we see in this book, especially in the center section, and I'm going to read a quote, from a book I've been reading, is that Christ reveals his power more clearly through the broken than the powerful. He reveals his power more clearly through the Mother Teresas than the Joseph Stalins, through the cross rather than the sword. Because you would think, you would think Pharaoh would have said, oh man, those were not great plagues. I did not like that. That timeout worked, God. But instead it doesn't, and we see the same thing happening in chapter 9, where after these first six plagues, it says the nations did not repent. Verse 21 says, they didn't turn away from their murders or spells or drugs or sexual immorality or their stealing. So then in chapter 10, something kind of weird happens. But for me, this is where I came up with the phrase, don't just go to church, be the church. See, in chapter 10, basically an angel gives this scroll, this scroll of apocalyptic prophetic things that's going to be revealed, that's going to be professed 
to John and simply says, eat it. Which, weird? I mean, that's just really weird. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But if we have a first century perspective, what seems clear is that the gospel was a good news that needed to be proclaimed. See, in this first and second century world, they didn't have the habits that we had. Oh, I showed up to church two hours on a Sunday morning. I'm good. They had a life or death. This is my everything or it's nothing because following Jesus cost all of they had, everything that they had. Following Jesus cost them literally everything. They had this choice to make where they were either going to proclaim this gospel good news, not just in a Sunday school class on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week and put it into practice, which could then land them in a world of trouble with the Roman Empire, or they could choose not to. So in this period of time when the church is heavily persecuted, when these churches in Asia Minor are are in this decision that they need to make between compromise and faithfulness, where they're basically trying to say, well, what if we do like most of the Christian stuff, but that stuff that really gets us in trouble with Rome? I don't want to do that. I, I still want to be able to trade my goods and services. I still like living in my cush environment. I still really like this, that, or the other. What this angel is basically telling John is it's an all or nothing sort of a thing. And to proclaim that is to basically almost out yourself to the empire that would seek to do you harm. Is to bear witness to who Jesus is, which is what Jesus calls us to do. So in chapter 11, there's this pivotal moment. There's this moment where after, after John eats the scroll, and it says in chapter 10, verses 10, so I took the scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it made my stomach churn. I was told, you must prophesy again about many people, nations, languages, and kings. So the culmination of that scroll that was open, John is supposed to proclaim, and then he's given a measuring rod, and he's told, get up and measure God's temple, the altar, and those who worship there, but don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out because it has been given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. There's a whole lot in that couple verses. Uh, and in this chapter in general, a whole lot that I don't want to spend too much time on because, once again, it's a subject of, of debate. But there's this uh, understanding of the 70 weeks of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7 and 8, Daniel has a whole lot of very similar prophetic, apocalyptic language. You can go and read it because he talks about some of these very similar same things about a temple, about a beast, about martyrs. And it's curious the language that is used. There's definitely some, some interesting parallels between these chapters. But basically what happens is the temple is the central figure in this story. In the 70 weeks of Daniel and in, this, uh, in the book of Revelation, it's going to talk more and more about it. But at some point, there is going to be uh, the destruction of a temple. And the division, the divisive nature of, of this book and of the book of Daniel is that, okay, was that the destruction of the temple in the first century, or is that a destruction of a future temple? And it's, for me, just not an argument that's worth having because it, it draws us away from maybe the most significant and important truths that we could learn from this book. See, if you continue on in verse 3, it says, I will allow my two witnesses to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing morning clothes, we can get into numerology later. There's more important things that I want to focus on. 
These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If you remember, lampstands represented churches in the, the first couple chapters. And to prophesy was simply to say, this is what God wants you to know. This is going to lead you down a path of ruin and destruction. This is going to lead you down a path towards me. And these two witnesses, once again, you can see it out there. There are two schools of thought. There's never ending with the book of Revelation. These are two literal people. Or these are a metaphorical, figurative representation of what the church is supposed to be, prophetically. Anyways... Continuing on in verse 5, if anyone wants to hurt them, fire comes out of their mouths and burns up their enemies. That's weird. I honestly don't know what that's about. But some people have lots of opinions on it, and I'm sure you can find some opinions on YouTube, but take it with a grain of salt. So if anyone wants to hurt them, they have to be killed in this way. They have the power to close up the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with any plague as often as they wish. When they have finished their witnessing, the beast that comes up from the abyss, and this is also discussed in Daniel 7 and 8, will make war on them, gain victory over them, and kill them. And we just read, and this is what's confusing for me, and it's like, yeah, you're a pastor, you should know. Revelation is weird, guys. Just No one's supposed to be able to hurt them, but then a beast comes up and kills them. Their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the peoples, tribes, and languages, and nations will look at their dead bodies, but they won't let their dead bodies be put in a tomb. Three and a half days. It's like similar to a guy named Jesus or something like that. Those who live on the earth will rejoice over them. They will celebrate and give each other gifts because these two prophets had brought such pain to those who live on earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. Great fear came over those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven say to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that hour there is a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed by the earthquake, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second horror is over, the third horror is coming, and then the seventh trumpet. See, there's just so much that we could spend so much time on in this book. But there's still an ever-present theme for us today to gain some truth from. The first few chapters were to the church. Literal seven churches in Asia Minor were represented. But it was also for us to say, hey, you think you're doing really good, but the next couple chapters were about who are you actually following? Do you have it in your head that you want Jesus to be like this? Because guess what? This is what Jesus looks like. He looks like a slain lamb. He's not that lion that's super big and strong like Aslan and C.S. Lewis. You're literally going to say you want to follow a slain lamb, which is weird. That is really weird, but it's also kind of weird the things Jesus did, like riding on a donkey for his triumphant entry. That's just kind of a weird thing to do. And then dying for his enemies and raising again on the third day, asking God to forgive those that killed him, offering them opportunity to receive grace, to be reconciled with their creator. But what we also see throughout these crazy plagues and judgments is some of the same language we see in the gospel at work. See, there are these martyrs. There are these people that were called the chosen with God's army. There are these witnesses that do very similar things. They choose to not be like the rest of culture and go so far as, especially with these witnesses, 
to die for their enemies, which then is what leads to repentance. See, this is one of the first times that we see nations or people saying, oh wait, that was God that did that. There's the word uh, afraid and then give glory. And that fear is basically this realization that, oh wow, this might be real. Oh wow, this whole God-Jesus thing might be pretty legit actually. This might not be something that we should play around with. See, what these witnesses do and don't do is really important. Because it would be very easy for them to have used the flames of their mouth or whatever crazy superpower things that they had to just smack everyone down, to unleash all these plagues. They had all the power to do that, but they don't. Uh, it kind of seems like, because they have these like supernatural superpowers, they allowed themselves to be martyred because it led to the nations repenting. That to follow God through the difficultness that is this life, whether there are literal or figurative horsemen of the apocalypse making life difficult, these lampstands, these olive trees, these witnesses, bore witness of who Jesus was by doing what Jesus did and dying for their enemies so that they could understand that the things this world offers perhaps aren't the best things in the world. Up until this point, we had judgment hardening hearts just like they did to Pharaoh in Exodus. But it seems that love and redemption may do just the opposite. That offering grace and forgiveness, that offering to be redeemed, is something that can soften a hardened heart. One of the most intense stories in the New Testament for me is the story of the thief on the cross because it grapples with these very same things. See, there's two thieves on the other side of Jesus, and one said, ha ha, save yourself, dummy. I mean, that's Josiah's paraphrasing. You should go read it for yourself. The other said, he doesn't deserve this. We do. We totally deserve this. But it's curious because that one thief that is chastising Jesus is being punished, but hasn't repented, changed his heart, hasn't changed his mind, hasn't said, oh, you know, I was wrong. My bad. He's still not repenting, but the other thief is showing some, some sort of understanding about what he's doing because he's witnessing who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. And it's changing him in a very real way. So much so that he says, when you enter into your kingdom, calling him a king, saying he has a king, he's like, don't forget me. He said, I'll see you there. See you later, later today, I'm going to see you there. Jesus could have just rebuked and chastised. He could have called down all sorts of plagues from the sky. He could have ushered in all sorts of judgments, but he chose to be obedient, even unto death. And that is a continuing theme that sometimes we gloss over in the book of Revelation. That those that are faithful, that choose faithfulness over compromise, historically, even in those churches that were the literal seven churches in Asia Minor, follow Jesus even unto death. That that death, being a martyr, dying for what they believe in, had an incredible and lasting effect on those around them. Even in the Gospels, even in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the soldiers that crucified Jesus were like, oh, I don't feel good about that. This guy really might have been who he said he was. That at some point, for redemption to happen, it seems that love 
Love that is pure and true. Love that is so loving that it means laying down your life for another might be the final hope for humankind to be redeemed with its creation. And if we're honest with ourselves, we already spoiled the end of Revelation. That's what the book is about, is God redeeming creation, reconciling it to himself, taking care of all the the issues that it has. But he calls us to help in that work. He calls us to be the church instead of just going. He calls us to bear witness. And whether or not we are the metaphorical two witnesses doesn't matter for me so much because Jesus already said, you're supposed to be my witness. You're supposed to be who I called you to be. Now we could spend a lot of time doing what these seven churches did, what some of these nations are like, pick and choose. You know, I'll follow Jesus in my heart, but I don't really want to go and do that stuff over there. That's hard. We could maybe spend a whole lot of time reading in the book of Revelation and assuring ourselves, okay, I'm pretty sure I believe the right things, so I'm not going to have any issues when it comes to all this stuff. It's scary. And while Revelation is very frightening at times, I think we can fool ourselves into a false sense of security. Jesus had some, some less than, well, he, he had some pretty blunt words for the spiritual leaders of the day, for the nations, for basically people like us. He basically thought we should know better. And he said a lot of stuff about how we are supposed to live because of the faith that we have and the things that we believe. See, what we see unfolding and what we're going to continue to see is this very interesting imagery of how Jesus and the world can clash and how his followers can get caught in the middle and how at some point we might find ourselves choosing. And this is the continuing theme. This is perhaps the essential truth that, that I would speculate most can agree on that we should learn from Revelation. That it's a matter of us choosing faithfulness over compromise. We're going to talk about Babylon. We're going to talk about the mark of the beast. We're going to talk about a dragon. We're going to talk about a woman who uh, does things. I'm not going to say what they call her in the King James Version right now. We're going to talk about all of these things that are going to come to pass, but if we lose sight of who we are called to be, then Revelation will become nothing more than just another thing for us to argue about. What Jesus calls us to do is live a different way, to offer a better suggestion, to, to model something different than what the world offers. Because the world offers a whole bunch of less than ideal things. Currently, we can't stop hearing day in and day out how someone said something about somebody else, about how someone called somebody this name, how about somebody called someone that name, about someone threatened this, that, or the other, about all this nonsense. And what's worse is we can't even seem to be able to have conversations about what is going on without finding some way to disagree about something. And someone, where's that dinosaur, Emily? Did you bring it in here for real? You don't have to actually hold it up. Dinosaurs. You don't have to actually grab it right now. I was just joking. Okay, you can grab the dino DNA. <sighs> I regret that. Dino DNA. dino DNA. 
Someone brought a dinosaur because of how many times I brought up dinosaurs. We have this opportunity before us, church, to make it really simple for ourselves and for the world around us. To simply do the things Jesus called us to do. To, to take into consideration what it means to live in the end. To understand that things might get a little bit difficult. But that, more than anything, should spur us on to these conversations to say, you know what? These, these are the non-negotiables. These are the essential things that we are professing as people of faith. But not only are we professing them like John did when he ate the scroll and professed it, but we are living it. We are modeling a new way to live because we are following a slain lamb. While other people choose to follow, pick your metaphor. Pick your metaphorical image. We have choices that we have to make on a daily basis, but as a collective group of people, what we see is that love, love is the ultimate transformative agent of change. That the church was told to wake up to practice this message of love, taking up its cross daily and following Jesus, even if it means sacrificing ultimately so that others may understand this love. However, I think we're not quite there yet because we still struggle with choosing compromise. We choose our own way. We choose sinful ways, and, and it's not about whose sin is worse because the Bible says we've all fallen short. But basically, we just choose to be selfish, to look out for ourselves. When Jesus calls us to look out for other people, even if it means we have to be sacrificial, but that compromise, what John is warning us, what John is warning the world is that compromise ushers in this judgment and destruction. But it seems that perfect love is what leads people to redemption, to repentance, to reconciliation. And what's really weird about that church is that in the world's eyes, we win by losing that we win by following the slain, the slain lamb, the one that sacrificed himself for others. We win not by the ways of this world, not by conquest, war, disease, or death, which is basically the world's chosen mode of operation, but by laying down our lives for others in a metaphorical but also very literal way. I would challenge you this week to read, to read these books, to read these chapters without some sort of preconception about what you already know you think it says. But ask God to tell you, to speak to you about the things that you think you need to learn from books like Revelation, from books like Daniel. And don't lose sight of the fact that these books are still in the same Bible as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus said, love God with your everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And see how interconnected these books can be and what it is saying to you about how you should live your life. We're going to continue next week with chapters 12 and 13 and 14. If you want to read ahead, we're not going to read every verse, verse for verse. But we're going to start taking a couple chapters at a time, so... If you want to be up to date with what we're doing, read ahead and then come Wednesday night because we're going to dive deeper and discuss further 
what this book has to say about who we are supposed to be, how we're supposed to follow Jesus, what it looks like for us to be the church in this period that some speculate is the end. Ultimately, for us today, it is a question of not just going to church, but being the church and understanding that each one of us has a part to play in being the church, that God has given gifts and abilities to each and every one of us so that we can be part of his agents of redemption and reconciliation. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you would like to know more about our church, please visit us at sheltonnaz.org. You can hear more sermons, you can tithe online, and you can see our current events. Thanks again for listening. We will see you next time.